Hello and welcome to Geek Sweat. This is the podcast for film and TV by filmmakers and film enthusiasts. We are the project that gives you cult TV, hot topics, inspiration interviews, review sweat and trailer talk. Today you're listening to season four, episode 62, where we've invited an IMDb listed filmmaker to come in and share their expertise, anecdotes and hopefully some few fun facts and tips about how to get into the film industry. With me today, I'm being sound recorded with Neo Geo. And we are also being co-presented by Kingdom. Hello. And MKH. Buongiorno. And we have a special new guest presenter in Jamie. Oh, hey. Hi, guys. Now, Jamie, we haven't got a nickname for you just yet, but hopefully one will come in time. Have you got a nickname? Everyone just calls me Jay. It's just easy. Jay. But we've got TJ. Don't you think TJ and Jay is going to be confusing? I don't know. I think she can have half of the name. That's cool. She's not half of you. She deserves her own special nickname. I'm just half of person. We can share. I'm a, I'm a sharing person, so it could be TJ and Jay. I'm sure that can work out. So you're, you're, you're essentially his rib. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. All right, you've killed it now. Yeah. We've gone biblical now. We've got the Eve to our Adam. But thank you for coming in and creating some balance and adding some more femininity to our show and hopefully some intellect. And interesting conversation. Hopefully, some internet. No, what yeah, are you trying to say? No, all alone. <laughs> we, we haven't always been an intellectual um, uh, podcast. But yeah, hopefully, you'll be all jump in with the questions that we weren't able to come up with. So, thank you for coming on board, Jenny. Great and stop uh, throwing me in under the bus, guys. Um, the next person that we've got is our IMDb listed interviewee, all the way from Los Angeles. So, welcome to Charles H. Jocelyn. Thank you. Now, Charles, I'm absolutely certain I've pronounced the first name right. Could you please tell me how the surname is supposed to be pronounced? Surname goes with Jocelyn. The reason being, it's originally a French name, which is Jocelyn. Okay. So, but people go with Jocelyn every now and then. I'm not going to, you know, throw a tantrum for it. So it's okay. But you, that was a perfect, perfect rendition of it. I've actually done one thing right in this podcast. I, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me... Um, where you're from because the mm-hmm. accent's kind of throwing me because right. we've met before mm-hmm. in East London we did. and you ventured across the Atlantic. So mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit about your backstory, your history of where you come from? Okay, so I have a tendency of being a little verbose, so please do not hesitate to throw things at me when you're done. Um, so I'm French, born and raised. I grew up in Paris. I'm originally from the French West Coast. I was born in the city of Nantes. Uh, for those who don't know where it is, think of the wine region Bordeaux and just you know, go up 200 kilometers and that's, that's where that is. Um, then I, uh, moved to the UK when I was 18 and one week, uh, right after nine 11 security was very tight at the Eurostar I recall to this day, did my studies there for five years. Um, I, yeah, we should have been, t- should have taken three, but there was one year of what you call it uh, foundation course. Plus I had to retake a year cause I did something terrible with an essay, which didn't please the, uh, an essay. no, 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 I did. I, it was just a silly, like it was an essay, which I didn't write. I forgot about it. And I literally discovered the paper, the day was due. Oh, no. And this is like 2004 or whatever. Like the internet is empty at this time. Right. Yeah. And so I just like went online. First thing I found was from the BFI. I went, copy pace some said copy pace uh and uh i never said it was mine but it was obviously considered as plagiarism rightly so i said at least i ended something over and they were like i'm sorry mr jocelyn this is not going to cut it and so i had to like retake the module the following year but during that wasted year quote unquote i made a short film which very much impressed and somebody later on in my life who was much more important than my tutors and that's somebody who was when i moved to munich in germany for a couple of years after graduating a russian producer called alexey berkovich he became my mentor he's the one who really saw what i could do with post-production which is where i specialized he was like okay you're good at uh He's Russian, like he's a Russian bear. He does not care about your feelings. So that sounds like a really serious name as well. Oh, very serious name. And he's a very serious man. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, the best he ever said after upon reviewing my work was "Charlie, you have potential," and that's as nice as any compliment I've ever got from him. Um, but yeah, he introduced me to the world of really uh, commercial directing and writing. So there you go. Two years in Munich after my five years of studies in Surrey. And eventually I decided to move back to London 
in 2009, right after the credit crunch, because why not pick the worst time in the world? And uh, twice pick, over. Twice yeah, over, you correct. You picking the worst times in the world to travel. Huh? I'm very good at that. And then I moved to the US right after Brexit, when, you know, the pound dropped by 25, 30%. So that was- that was Hey, a, why not be poorer? I know, exactly. I should, uh, I should definitely be that. But yeah, so that's, in a nutshell, that's what happened. Grew up in France, education in the UK, little, you know, little stint in, uh, in Germany and then more London times, and finally now, Los Angeles. You describe yourself as a creative director. Yes. So that's the term that I, uh, well, certainly didn't coin, but in the advertising industry, which is where I've done most of my work so far, uh, this is where people who conceive commercials um, and have oversight over a team, uh, this is the term that they go by. And I've always been told specifically, ooh, I can see you guys are playing my reel there um you yeah it's a term which allows me to combine sort of the full spectrum of what i have some expertise in which really does go from the writing stage all the way to the post-production through direction middle so creative director is a good term for me for what i do thus far so i mean you say what you do Mm -hmm. goes through the whole spectrum Mm -hmm. is it a process that you enjoy equally or are there highlights for you along the way so the process really is different from one project to another. Obviously, the internet has changed everything since the day you know I graduated in what was that, two thousand and seven, and you know the hierarchy of what the advertising industry used to be, where things were very um, you know cornered and pigeonholed, has just changed drastically. So from one project to another, I can be involved in only the writing stage. I can be involved only in the directing stage. And or I can be involved in a combination of whatever is required by the client and so on and so forth. The last project I worked with in the US was for an agency called Havas, which is a fairly big agency. And I was uh, hired for them to help adapt a commercial that they had in the US and they wanted to adapt it to the US, sorry, UK, French and German market. Happens that I speak French and my German is, you know, not good, but it's okay. So I was there for both the copywriting and actually the post-production, but not the directing. It's just an example of things move, shift, change, you have to do and roll with the industry. So when you get found to be hired, is that you being attached to an agent? Is that you being having a, a long list of credits behind you? Or are you foraging and constantly picking away at contacts and trying to network with people? So I'm terrible at networking. I've always been really... Uh, bad at that and i'm fairly i mean i'm really passionate about the work but i'm really not passionate about selling myself which is you know pretty silly but that that's it just is the way it is and i can do some you know a little better here or there but overall i'm not really good at this so really it's it's a lot of agencies and it's a lot of uh word of mouth that brings me jobs in in that part of the world at least um every now and then there will be something that i see online and i will just maybe send an email or an application or whatever but frankly so far especially i've like saved um i managed to achieve a couple of retainers currently in the us and that's great so there's like repeat work that comes with agents with companies uh especially one called v which is a little uh tech startup uh they specialize in creating like an ai personal trainer assistant kind of like series but focused only on jogging so these guys come to me for all their post-production needs and for their copywriting needs but not necessarily for the shoot depending again on projects and so on and so forth i watched that commercial oh yeah great nice yeah good i mean it looks slightly alarming to me but that's Mm -hmm. no reflection on the quality of the commercial just the actual product i'm not supposed to agree with you so i won't agree with you but i do agree with you (laughs) okay One thing I want to just step back into as well is like how we met each other because um, a long, long time ago, you wanted to do a project proposal Mm. uh, and pitch it to Channel 4. Right. Um, I think it might have been like a V for volunteering thing or something. I genuinely can't recall. So I hope I am banking that you will have a better memory than me. Well, we don't have to go deep into that. This isn't like a a memory quiz. What day was it? Uh, Yeah, it was like Monday. (laughs) Monday, that's the one, yeah. But um. (laughs) The thing is, you seem to be attracted or attracting like big brands. Mm. And um, when I think of like big brand adverts or promotions or commercials, there's like a scale of responsibility or a scale of interest that's beyond 
let's say making a uni short film or like a local community advert, mm -hmm. community project advert. So what is it that attracts you to these types of projects and how do you perhaps change your mindset to work with different clients? So um, just to finish the, actually the first part of the, the answer of the previous question, there's an agency, actually two uh, recruitment slash work agency that represent me in the US. Uh, they're called Vitamin T in the Creative Circle. And there's a fair bit of work that comes with them. They have great um, connections. And they, uh, if they bring you onto a project, you know you are not necessarily yet the chosen one. And, but if they bring a project to you, you're likely to be getting like an interview or a phone call with the client. That's really where you shine. And what I've realized with a lot of these big brands is the bigger the project and the more money is involved, the more middlemen there is and the more the really really the job of the advertisers um not the ad advertisers my bad the the agencies or the middlemen again is to really just pet the client's ego to make them feel like safe and secure and like we really care about you right yeah and uh so it's all that stuff which which is really what they pay big bucks for and because there's so many people in the process of making them feel really good and like, this is the best director and this is the best editor and there's literally nobody in the world who could do that soap commercial better than these guys that we're bringing into you. Um, I realized that it's a lot of blah, 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 but the clients get lost a little bit into how to actually achieve quality and where to put their money on the screen or on the website or on the banner or whatever the form uh, the commercial will take. So I have a really good tendency of bringing things back to this is how your dollars are going to reach the consumer. That would be maybe a little tip. And that's something which I've realized seems to have given me at times at least an edge to get fairly decent size uh, commercial projects. How did you first get into doing commercials, Charles? Because you studied film. Yep. What was the transition? So like every uh, stupid kid at college, you think you're going to be the next Spielberg. And then, uh, you know, there's this thing called life that slaps you in the face. And um, then I was very lucky again to, when I moved to Munich, which was for personal reasons, family reasons at the time, I didn't expect anything to happen work-wise. And, you know, my understanding it was, it, is that it would be for a couple of years. It turned out it would be for a couple of years with then lots of back and forth, but didn't expect at all what happened to, um, yeah, which, which is what happened. So met this Russian producer who I worked as an intern in a company called Dedo Vigert Film, and they manufacture lights. And I got Dedo lights. Dedo lights, exactly. The Dedo lights, the famous Dedo light, the washable light, as they like to like, brand is that themselves. A German company. German company. I didn't know that. German design, German engineered. Oh. Makes sense now, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and yeah, very uh, efficient. Very efficient, absolutely. And um, and so yeah, they and great company. I mean, the the products are ex excellent, and uh, the team was was very nice. Uh, only problem there personally is that they all wanted to practice their English with Der Americana, which was me, because <laughs> they all thought I was American and I couldn't practice much of my uh, German. Anyway, so uh, that was my little beef. But when I was there, I was pretty much the only, again, North American sounding kid uh, in, or person in that company. And this, this man steps out of his office and looks at me and goes like, who are you? Step into my office. <laughs> and uh, then this you know, Russian guy introduces himself and says, I'm Alexei Berkovich and I'm in charge of the Russian market for Didalite. Um, yeah, what's your story? I gave him a little 20 minute spiel or whatever. And he came back with a 25 minute speech, which was just literally obliterated my five years of college. It was like, I had learned more from this guy's one speech than literally five years in college. Amazing. It, I could not express just how eye opening speaking to that person. I mean, he was blunt but it was really real and raw and it was right. And it was the best learning curve possible to have someone like this to just slap you with harsh facts. And it was great. So he decided to, I was just about clever enough to mention by the end of the speech that, you know, I had a few short films and uh, if you're interested one day, maybe you can give me your feedback kind of thing. He said, okay, I'll be in my office tomorrow at 9.30. 929, man, on the dot. I was in my DVD, I had created menus all night. That thing looked as sharp as a DVD could ever look. And um, there you go, handed it over to him. Didn't hear anything for a month. So I'm a couple of times in the building and I was like, I guess he didn't like it. Uh, and eventually he just said, um, Charlie, do you have a moment? Do you want to step in? And he said, okay, watch your stuff. Yes, you have potential. That's what he said. And uh, he said, I shoot commercial next week in Kazakhstan. You want to direct, yes or no? Mm. 
And I thought for a very, very long time, hell yes. <laughs> um, and that's how really the commercial gigs really started. And his long-term uh, plan for me or advice was started with commercials because they are well-paid and you get a lot of experience and you get like to play with big gizmos and eventually you can maybe make your way to America for feature narrative work. And that's now where I'm at 10 years later, just about starting to make the transition into that, but not quite there yet. But you have made inroads into narrative films. You've got a sure. couple of narrative features on your website. So there are um, several scripts that have been written. We will, I'll ask you to take uh, my word for it that they're well-written, that they're good. Obviously, I can't prove it right now. We've got some titles here. We've got Artificial. Yes. Which is Black Mirror meets Babel and Magnolia. That's correct. We've also got Trunk, yes. um, which is a young woman who makes up kidnap, who wakes up kidnapped inside of the trunk of a car mm -hmm. and she remains there for a harrowing journey, which in the end helps her grow stronger and better as a person. We also have Grass is Greener, mm -hmm. which is a feature film project in pre-production. So it looks like mm -hmm. you guys are still working on a log line for that. And uh, maybe something called Beyond Snow and Stars? Between Snow and Sorry, Stars. between Snow and Stars. No, no worries. So uh, of all the things you've listed, the first three are indeed projects. Now, wow. Gig, as I like to call it for short, was a project that I wanted to, to make in the UK. That turned out to be a little too difficult, a little too ambitious. We thought, let's put this back in the drawer for whenever the time's right. So yeah. we'll keep it. It's a very good script, but not ready for now. Um, Artificial will be hopefully my number two. And my number one as an actual theatrical, um, hopefully, yeah, feature film, that's in the works, that's in a decent place, is indeed Trunk. Trunk is a thriller drama. It's exactly what you said. You wake up with somebody in the trunk of a car and you spend the next basically 90 minutes with that person. So um, it's like a one location type thing. Kind of a very, yes, it's it's a high concept piece as the, I don't know if, if that's actually a term. It uh, is. Yeah, high concept. High concept. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, the, the Americans are very keen of that, of that term. Um, so this I can actually officially say has now an executive producer on board who is a legit individual. His name is John Baldecki. He is the one who was the EP on, um, if you want to bring up his in due time, um, IMD pa MDB page. How do you spell his name? Uh, John, first name, Baldecki is B-A-L-D-E-C-C-H-I, I think. Okay, should come up. Surely Italian origin of some sort. So he he worked for Fox for 15, 20 years. He was the producer of Point Break. And he, he was a nice suit as well. He wears a nice suit too. Yeah. Uh, and so he's the one who was the EP of both Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day 2, which oh, were wow. uh, Jason Bloom productions in the last sort of two, three years. And he was also a producer of the Mexican and the new version of Point Break. Of Point Break, correct. Wow. So he happens to be my best friend and producer's mentor. So he's his Russian producer, so to speak. Uh, mine was Russian and this, his is the is an actual producer. I think we found him because we found Alexei Berkovich. Mm. Is this the one I'm looking at now? Uh, it could be. I don't even know if he has an IMDb, IMDb page. There's he, something I want to say about IMDb and like your career path. But we'll come into that. Right. Um, but yeah, so Trunk has uh, John Baldecki as an EP. We're extremely grateful for his interest and he has done a marvelous job getting a, the script in a really good place. Uh Obviously, what I wrote was exquisite, of course, but uh, no, he made it better. And I'm very grateful for that. So we're in a good place. We're going to see where it goes. Quite a few things still need to be aligned. Uh, making a feature film is a big job, as I'm sure everybody here knows, but we're okay so far. So can we talk about, um, obviously, you wanted something that would definitely be made. So did you feel like a high concept piece would be more likely to get attention as a debut feature. So this is a good story for everybody listening to understand. Um, I wish somebody 10 years ago, and my mentor mentioned these things in his own way, which just I just flew over my head, but now in hindsight, I realized he gave me those warnings. It's very important to understand the, the, the food chain and the hierarchy. And um, In the film industry or on set? I would say in any industry whatsoever, but specifically... I mean, in, in our industry of film, of, of advertising, whichever. What I mean by that is, you know, 95% of people are at the bottom of the, the curve, that exponential curve. Then you've got about 5%, that sort of 4 or 3% maybe that make up the, the that sort of upward curve, which is people who make some kind of living out of the industry. And then at the, you know, tippy top, the 1% really are the people like this guy 
who are who are decision makers. Um, These are like your Lexis, John Baldeckis. Exactly. Okay. So it's very important to understand where you rank and where they rank and what they can do. And associating yourself with people who are, if you can, and if you find an asset which is useful for them, associating yourself with people who are above you on that food chain, so to speak. Um, Could you elaborate on asset? Because I yes. understand the term Correct. when they talk about scripts as properties. Correct. Does assets include yes. that or does it mean more? So it could be an asset if you want to be represented as a commercial director. You've got to understand that they need to pigeonhole you into a box so that when they, the producers slash production company, can then go to communication agencies and say, this is the guy who does, or woman, of course, who will make the best possible job for, again, your soap commercial or your car commercial or whatever. They want specialists and experts into a single thing. Now you get pigeonholed very quickly and for a long time when you do that, which really sucks. But if you understand this, then make a whole fake showreel about, I don't know, you pick. If you want to be like the expert of cell phones, then there you go. And is this pigeonhole perhaps one of the reasons why you might want to refer to yourself, and I'm talking about Charles H. Jocelyn, as creative director rather than commercials director, director, or DOP? That's absolutely correct. Um, it, it, It is more of a sort of tenpole term that allows me to place more skills which because i've i've had that i've had one agent once for not long at all six months maybe uh and i can't even remember her name but as, a, as a commercial director and she looked at my reel and she was like great you're a liquids director i'm like i'm what for real you're a liquids director what you do is slow motion glorious fancy liquid soap milk whatever you but you're you do liquids this is what you do you're a liquids director is End that because of. you you're now working with let's say account managers mm-hmm. in the agency role rather than filmmakers and creatives who are, who are managing agencies and they have to pigeonhole you so they can understand it rather than, rather than their clients. I don't know whether that's for them to understand it, but I can definitely see how making you the best at filling this box is going to then help them sell themselves sure. for the next client who needs this box to be filled. Gotcha. And that's extremely important. So that's for the commercial stuff. For the film stuff, I can tell you precisely but quickly what actually happened. I was working on a visa because, again, I'm not American, so I need to, to get a visa. I got what's called an O one visa. that because you're Canadian. I'm not. I'm French. You're born French? And, born and raised, 100%. Oh, right. When you listen to that. Yeah. Yes. I was listening. But <laughs> he wasn't I, listening. I'm so <laughs> offended. This, this is I it. Be out of room. The yeah. interview is over. And uh, steps heavily <laughs> to the door. I always put French-Canadian together. That's Charles, come back. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, so does your French accent come out when you, you get drunk or something? Or? So when I get drunk, maybe when I get drunk or tired. I mean, I'm like, actually, I'm very pleased and proud of myself finding the jet lag right this moment because it's yeah. been... It was so intense in the bus on the way here. I can't even yeah. tell you. Like, no, we've got to thank you for this as well, because tell us where you've been in the last 24 hours. Uh, yeah, no, I landed. I did manage to get some sleep, but I was awake until like 6.30 a.m. And I had to be up at 10. So I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep at all in the plane. And But you've come from Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I landed just, yeah. So no, I'm going to snore like an absolute hog the yeah. moment this is over. Cool, cool. Um, anyway. But to go back to the so trunk, which yeah. is, again, the best uh, narrative piece of commercial filmmaking that I may make. Again, we're not there yet, but it's in, it's in the works. So to get the visa, I decided at one point, I'd saved up some money, and I decided to come to L.A. for three months. And um, I, there was somebody I, was, uh, I, I knew enough to like stay with them for like three months at that time. So I did that. And so I met a few people, worked for them for free, 100%. Runner, intern, didn't matter. But I just wanted to like meet people who could then give me recommendation letters or like sign things which would help with the visa. So did that, met this guy, a Salvador, who became really a very close best friend uh, very quickly and uh, is a fantastic guy and incredibly efficient producer. And uh, yeah, he was producing this small uh, short film, a short film, what am I saying? Feature film called um, FML, which was produced by John Baldecki. Uh, and he, um, we got along very well, bloody, bloody, blah. One thing leads to the next, next, I had a chat with him before leaving after my, again, you're allowed 90 days on an ESTA visa, which is just what we as Europeans have. We're lucky for that as, you know, tourist visa basically. And, um, so after my, whatever, 85, 86 days there, it's time for me to leave, but I decided I'm going to have coffee with this guy. He knew that I worked hard for free 
and I expected him to help me with the the visa stuff, but I didn't expect necessarily anything else. But I thought, let's have a coffee. Let's just see. So he was kind enough to give me an hour of his time. And that's when he disclosed that his mentor was John Baldecki and they were interested in thriller stuff, right? Now there was no budget. There was no guideline, but they were just, you know, and I did say, I did very clearly say, if I were to come back in about a year with a, let's assume, well-written, fairly smart concept of a small one, two location, two, three actors at most type of thriller, maybe horror, maybe drama, would that be interested, interesting for you guys? And he's like, that's what we're looking for. So I had found the, the market. I knew the market was there. Then I just had to squeeze my little brain and think, what have I not seen? What will cost little money? What can bring out a, a, a great emotional, emotional resolve or, or catharsis of whatever, but what will be cinematic, basically? And um, then I thought, yeah, um, a female lead, uh, female-led uh, thriller drama in a trunk sounds like something which I've never seen before. I saw Buried, of course, uh, which was with Ryan Reynolds. And you, I thought it was a great concept, Buried in a, in a, a coffin. remake, mm. I think, wasn't it? I, not to my knowledge. Maybe you're right, but yeah, I don't know. Things are fr- it was a French film. Really? Are you sure? One. Let's, let's yeah. check that out. Amazing. Um, I wish I had known Ryan that. Ryan Reynolds did, um, I think it was... See, now I'm I French because you're speaking, uh, you're saying beautiful things about France. Yeah, so so Ryan Reynolds was in a film called Buried um, in 2010, but the uh, original film um, was French. I can't remember the actual title of it. It was called... Uh, Buried Alive? Nah, nah, it wasn't called Buried Alive. It was... Uh, that would have been an interesting French title. He <laughs> <laughs> might have been French for Buried. French. Um, mm. Actually, whilst I'm finding Come this, back to that. Um, we'll come back ja- to that, sure. Let me, let me just bring Jamie in here. I mean, like, what do you think of what um, Charles has said so far and what he's doing with his film career? Well, it's actually interesting, the kind of process that you're, you're going through to even get to where you are. I mean... I'm, you know, I think a lot of people who want to get into the industry, they just don't know where to start. So it's just quite interesting to see how you've kind of like made your path slowly but surely. Um, But what I'm really interested in is, is you've obviously got some kind of, you know, end game, some kind of project that you would just absolutely love to make. Can can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I think filmmaking is... For me, the, the greatest form of art, it is just what has brought escapism when I was a, a teenager, an angry teenager, uh, you know, grew up as an only child, so there was nobody to fight with at home. Um, and I just love it so much. I think it's, it's engineering meets art. Um, it, again, comes down when you film things to moving boxes and cables, uh, Mother Nature or the police or the angry neighbor or whomever, whenever you film something will again, remind you very quickly, if you think you're a king, again, life will slap you really hard real quick, and that's extremely good. So I loved filmmaking from the moment I discovered it and saw BTS scenes of any kind. I was like, this is my shit. I don't know what kind. I don't know if it's TV. I don't know if it's commercials, but this will be what I do. I need to elaborate on BTS because apparently that's like a really popular South Korean band at the moment. (laughs) Behind the scenes. No, no, I really mend the Korean band. Uh, (laughs) Behind the scenes, yes. So, and then I discovered the power of, again, filmmaking, storytelling through documentaries, which I'm terrible. I I would feel I would do a terrible job doing, but I find amazing the work that they do. And I tried one, it was not bad, Uh, but again, we'll go there later on possibly. So all that to say, I loved it, made me feel great. Um, and it felt also like I could potentially even have a voice in our culture and impact things, whether it is law, whether it is conversations about rights of any kind. And I thought maybe someone somewhere wants to hear what I have to say about it and can learn something and can avoid making mistakes, lots of mistakes that I made. So that's the end game is to find a way to create this beautiful um, artistic engineering of worthy ethical messages to be heard. Cool. Um, I just want right. to jump in, Jamie, for a sec. Um, I was trying to put Charles on the spot earlier, but the film that Buried is based on is called The Vanishing, and that was made in 1988, and it's a Dutch film, but it's set in Wrong. France. It's set in Wrong, France. Trevor. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> so I really apologise that for throwing everyone Not at off, all. off um, kilter. Not but at um, all. One thing I, I wanted to say, because I, I think we found Alexi 
Berkovich's um, IMDb page. Yeah. And he's a cinematographer, but also writer in camera and electrical department. And his credits kind of stop in 1997. And I'm just thinking, yeah. when you become this creative director, and like you said earlier, not um, you don't want to get pigeonholed. Does this mean that you've got to take, um, let's say, an unconventional route to get to your filmmaking goals? Because it seems like um, you can easily go to university, go to college, become an intern and work your way up the ladder at some like really big production company or small production company. But it feels like the pathway you, you're taking is about experimenting, learning on the job, physically actually doing things and then finding yourself in a situation where, because it sounds like you're getting a lot of mentors who are showing you there, there's more than one way yeah. to get into the area of making feature films. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you starting to notice like something unconventional about the way you approach film? So I had to make this harsh realization that I didn't want to make for a long time, which was that filmmaking is, uh, or, or anything is basically a product. And if you start thinking about things as a product and as customers, and if you start thinking of leverage and all these business terms that used to make my skin crawl, you realize a little bit more now that you can be an asset and that you can present, again, products that can be commercially viable. And now the people who are well, well above you on the, on the ladder now may have some interest in you. Before you think that way, at least before I thought that way, I was just some kid who wanted to make films because they're great. And that's just the least attractive uh, you know, pitch for somebody who is in the business of making money, which is any product that you're going to sell, especially if you want to then release things to an audience, whether it's obviously things have now developed a lot. Uh, go when, ahead. When you, you say that, I'm, I'm going to look at MKH because I know MKH is like astounding because he likes to consider himself an artist. Right. Now, I'm going to look at MKH, but I'm still saying this question to you. Sure. Do you feel that you've had to kill twist or crush your artistic identity to pursue that goal or pursue that thought? Absolutely a lot of twisting into a pretzel at times. There's no doubt about it. And I started thinking I can either go through the normal path and maybe find an audience that will be interested in what I have to do, but it's likely to be limited or I can swallow what was my pride, not talking to you about anybody else here, but was my pride and think, if I somewhat conform, yes, to the commercial viability that is required, maybe I can then bring this this larger, worthier artistic message to a larger crowd. And I thought, I'm going to swallow my little pill and I'm going to just try that way. And that has created way more openings. But there's no doubt that a lot of uh, personal pride had to be swallowed and that my, I don't know, my style, if you want to call it that, or my favorite topics had to change and shift and become commercially viable for sure because the thing is like the names that you've mentioned and what you talked about it's like you appear to be going from this moment of understanding the film industry in a slightly different way in order to keep making the film productions that you want your name to be attached to correct yeah that's a good summary of it absolutely so let's go back to um your projects now so you've got this um long-term plan going forwards where you've got your first feature and then you already have ideas for the subsequent features so there is four scripts that are two have been written one is on the website one i haven't mentioned anything yet because i've been busy i haven't updated the damn website uh two full feature film scripts have been auctioned um that are so artificial is one of them another one's called a sub artificial is yeah how does the film become optioned you need to find producers or a production company that is willing to, first of all, read your script and then finds it interesting enough that they want to keep the rights solely for themselves to develop it within a narrow period of time of six months, 12 months, 18 months, you decide. Uh, so yeah, that, that happened to the next two and I'm working on another two, which this is starting to be like a little, you know, nebulous and up in the air, but I, I will write them. Um, and they're not nebulous in my head at all. I know, I know where I know where it starts and where it ends and whatever. But I went to Cannes once because the best piece of um, commercial work that I've done as a creative director was for UNICEF, and uh, that I'm still very proud of. This is in 2000, 
12, I think. I can't even remember. And that was so, your commercial for UNICEF because I think that's on your website as that's well. That's on my website, it? absolutely. Yeah. That's going to be in the commercial section and you want to scroll down quite a bit down there. Um, I mean, you, there's some big names we're scrolling past. I've, I've just got to mention it. So um, we're scrolling past like Dolby, which is obviously like yep. the, um, the sound thing for Atmos and cinema. Sure. We're also scrolling past, um, I'm not sure what VI trainer is, but proven skincare. That was in the interview. Are you listening to any of this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, give me a sec, Dom. Um, we've got Vodafone down here as well and uh, Veet as well and yep. um, Alfresco. Alfresco, uh, that's a... That's a UK brand and they do really good products. Anyway. Okay, this is U- uh, UNICEF, the Landmine so, Awareness Day, is it? Yeah, one? exactly. So that's okay. the one. So um, UNICEF basically uh, decided to commission. So I tried, the, again, another important question. Question, what am I saying? Yeah. Uh, anecdote, which was regarding, uh, at one point I tried to create a little communication agency slash production company with a friend here in the UK. Sure. It was an absolute total disaster. Is that red tape? getting in the way oh my god it was our at least my total inability to understand where we were again in that food chain and oh, how to get clients yeah. and just we got an office got a nice fancy sexy website with like streaming video and whatnot we got some really nice business cards they felt really thick yeah. as thick as uh as, that sounds uh, quite close to um what is it? American, American Psycho, Psycho yeah. right exactly <laughs> there was some of that going on okay. and uh it was like it, the appearances were were impeccable it was great and uh, we forgot one small detail, which was we were two young idiots in their 20s, um, late 20s by this point, who um, just had not done years of work in an agency in a production company, had not, quote unquote, stolen the uh, contact book. And we were then cold calling uh, clients and agencies and whatnot and offering our services. And it's like, why in the world would they listen to this dumb American sounding dude who's calling them out of nowhere when they can be working with Jeff, you know, or whomever has been in their office for like 10 years before he then created his own agency. Never thought of that. So there's a disadvantage in being too young and not familiar. Uh, I mean, absolutely. So, but that was one of the greatest uh, experiences ever. And I lost a lot of money on that, which was very painful, but it was an incredible learning curve. So I'm very glad I did it. Through that though, did come the um, UNICEF because they're not, see, they weren't really caring about the glossy, what have you done before? It's like, who are you? Do you have an idea? Is it a good idea? Great. Yeah. They were happy and they cared, mm-hmm. if anything, about first the message and the, the artistry of it, so to speak. So do you think it's because UNICEF were more focused in, in the moment and they weren't trying to buy your legacy or history, so to speak? I don't know. You'll have to ask them, but I think they were they were genuinely keen on on a clever way of taking their message of being open to people in the rest of the world, and we came up with a good concept. When I say we, that's the royal we. Actually, that was me. But we, as a production company, yes, brought them a good concept, and they were like, "This is clever. This doesn't cost much. We're going to be keen on doing that." And so that got nominated for Ken Lyons Award, and so it's like I felt like, yeah, man. 27, 28, going to Cannes, you know, I want to have a good time. This is going to be great. And um, going there, I thought, okay, if I go to Cannes for the Lions Festival, I might as well go the month before to the film festival. Why not? Do Why both. Not? You know, uh, and I really enjoyed the film festival. And we were there. We had nothing to really to pitch. I mean, which, yeah. which year was this? I think it's, two, it's either 2011 or 12. I can't, I can't remember anymore. Um, it was when I was young. And uh, so went there for the film festival, had a very good time, went there with my business partner and Billy. Um, and yeah, that's kind of that. We're like, okay, great. And using the uh, commercial card or whatever, we managed to get accreditations to go to the actual film market. And that's the first time that we realized, shit, like films are products, like as mm. concrete as a cup or an iPhone or a license plate. And okay, if people think that term and you're like, really? Like that feels like you're just selling your soul. This is, uh, I hated it, hated it. But I learned a lot from that. And one thing that I did learn, hence cutting back to all these projects that I've got and um, which hopefully will become reality one day. Some guy came up to us and he said, um, you know, we, we, we had an idea for a script and we pitched it. He was like, did our homework really well. You're more prepared than lots of people who come here and have like, you know, 10 years, 15 years of experience but they do have 10, 15 years of experience. And one thing you don't know that they do is 
people, first time filmmakers give everything, their blood, their sweat, their money, a lot of the times for that first feature. And then they think, made it. This is it. I got my film. I can just wait for that phone to ring. And I don't know, CAA or whatever huge agency, United Artists is going to be at the other end of the phone. And that is the worst idea you can think of. So that guy made very, very clear that first feature film, no matter what it is, earns you a 30 second to two minute pitch with the next big guy who is slightly above on the food chain. And if you're not ready for that pitch, you fucked it up and it's your, and it's your fault. I don't know if that's actually true. I haven't gotten there yet, but I know I heard that loud and clear. Mm. And I had met people in Ken who were indeed first-time filmmakers who had made a feature, very respectable budgets, 1 million euro here, 2 million euros there, like well above where I was. And they were like struggling for two, three years after that to make the second one because they were not ready for that. You know, the iron was hot and they just didn't quite make the best out of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So that's a lesson that I feel like that I've learned from other people's mistakes. I don't know if that's accurate again, but I'm going to assume that it is. So we have a lot of things that are ready for film two, three, soon four, and number one is still not even made. <laughs> we'll oh, see. It's fantastic. But that's it's, the mentality, for me at least. Tell us a little bit about what you consider to be your best work to date. Um, so as a commercial... Yes, I would say UNICEF. It's the most meaningful one. It was a fantastic process to get in touch and to speak personally on the phone with, at the time, uh, John Cassidy, who was at the time, I know he's retired since, the head of um, communication for UNICEF. And uh, who was a very graceful individual. And uh, I have a lot of praises for this man. So that was for UNICEF for the commercial stuff. Um, and then for narrative filmmaking, I would say my best uh, film so far production so far, is Gone Dark, which is a 30-minute short film, which was never designed for festivals. It was designed only to be exactly what it is, really, which is a shrunk, a, uh, a shorter three-act um, story structure, really. And that was, I really wanted to do that in collaboration with the trunk script to then present this as a package to somebody who I knew was accessible through a good friend. And that's exactly what happened. That worked perfectly. Um, wrote a script, which is what they were looking for. And I made this, uh, this film, which was based on an original idea by Nancy, the young lady who is the lead, who is fantastic, wonderful actress, um, Spanish, but lives in, in London and makes a living out of it. I just, I don't even know how she does it. And um, yeah, she's great. Known her for a few years and I cannot wait to work with her again if she will have me direct her again on set, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she came up to me once with an idea. She wrote a script herself. It was about 16, 17 pages. I read it. Uh, things were clunky. A lot of stuff took place at night. She wanted to film in the summer. I'm like, ah, the nights are going to be short. This is, I think, what do you want to actually say with this? And she explained what it was. Very personal, uh, deep, you know, meaningful story that something that she went through. And I was like, I think I get it. I love the message. It absolutely needs to be heard. Um, about kind of abusive relationships and all. And I thought, I think I can adapt this in a way which is going to be more cinematic and will work better as a piece. She trusted me, made the film. Happy days. Sure. So Nancy has written this. Uh, mm -hmm. she, she wants to act in it. Yep. And uh, Jamie's like looking at me with like fire in her eyes now. And um, as I, a, I, just, I just think I know where you're, you're leading the center. I know where I'm leading this to. <laughs> because I'm thinking of doing the collaboration, well, I'm doing the collaboration with Jamie at the moment, so I want it to work as well. So this is for me and Jamie. But um, you're coming in as a director. So what was the kind of language that you used to kind of tease out how to get the best ideas out of Gone Dark. So right. you understood it in a way that you could get the best out of the film cinematographically mm -hmm. without trampling over mm -hmm. how this story was conceived by Nancy. Well, it was uh, to fully understand what she wanted to achieve. Yeah. And I would say this is another, I guess, tip, uh, which again, maybe I'll change my tip 10 years from now, but so far I would say it's a good tip to give. Whenever I would write a script of any kind, I start at the end. I will know how I leave my audience. Okay. From that point onward, I know where to start it. And that's instantly makes filling up the blanks a lot easier than just finding your way through to something, nothing, okay. something amazing, something terrible. I don't know. Yeah. But it has helped me a lot to know where to end in order to start. 
literally this is a you know reverse engineering the process is absolutely it's literally what i have on my resume which i never use anymore but it's like that's the term that uh, i've heard once this term reverse engineering in 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 relation to like brain whatever ai research and stuff like that but i thought if i apply this to um again engineering story and filmmaking if i start at the end if i understand how i want to finish if i want to leave people which with which message which which emotion then uh, then I'm likely to find a straighter and more efficient path to start from A to Z. I'm just going to say another analogy because MKH is a stand-up comedian as well. Yeah. Uh, so is it about being clear and understanding what your punchline is um, to your story and then you'll find the journey to that punchline um, once you've got a clear idea of it? I mean, as an analogy, I think that works. I I'm certainly not a comedian. I would freeze on stage. I do not know how these people do it. They are just yeah. the bravest humans on earth. It. He's right here. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Like I, I've literally, I would literally freeze, like and blush. It would be terrible. But yeah, no, I would assume that's a very good analogy. Um, but yeah. So as far as just to wrap it up with Gone Dark again, it was just about really sitting down Nancy and saying like, okay, well, this scene. Let's see what we actually achieve. We establish this. We show that. We plant maybe an element. Okay, great what's the purpose of this? Well, and she tells me this. And in the end, we just unpacked everything and what she really wanted to say. And then I said, well, your script doesn't quite get you there. It gets you someplace which is kind of murky and a little off. And if I'm wrong, prove me wrong. But she couldn't prove me wrong because on that one, I was correct. And that was a fair analysis of her script. And uh, and again, then I wrote something which I felt was going to be better. And she seemed to have agreed and she gave me her trust. And I'm very grateful for it. So what happened subsequently? Um, did you take contact to festivals or what was your plan with the film? So this is another big part of uh, 35-year-old Charlie who's become very cynical about many, many things. But I tried the festival route multiple times with multiple short films and it has served me somewhat well, but mostly not in, ex- in ways which I would expect or which people usually at least used to sell it to me, right? So make a good short film send it to this festival. All right, which ones? A million of them. So yeah, I, I, I would assume that somehow um, somehow festivals would be a good way to meet, again, the big producer who's like waiting with a sign that says, I have lots of money. I don't know what to do with it. Come to me, kid, with your script, right? Hmm. And uh, that surprisingly does not exist. <laughs> so there seems to be only very few festivals, really the high-end ones, the, I don't know, the Sundance and the Cannes and the maybe London Film Festival, whatever. I never got into any of those. <laughs> so first of all, that, that was not going to happen. And even if I did, I don't know what the outcome would have been, but I realized Gondark, again, was not conceived to be a festival short film. It was a, it was a, 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 a small feature film. And I knew who my audience was. I had a target audience. I made it purposefully for somebody who I knew was looking for then what I could offer to that person. Again, referring to John Baldecki with a feature film, which is a high concept drama thriller. So I just wanted to impress with my directing skills and how to move a character from A to B to C, do it with hopefully style and in a manner which hopefully would be um, emotionally pleasing or in, engaging. That was the purpose of that, not festivals. And it did go to a few festivals, one, I believe, in Toronto, not the Toronto Film Festival, something smaller, but over there, a couple more left and right. And I'm happy that it did. I genuinely can't remember if it won anything. I assume not, or as I guess I would be aware of it. Um, and if it does, it's yeah. an unusual length as well. It's like 30 minutes. It's exactly 30 minutes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it was about 10 minutes per act. And, uh, it was, this really was a, it's a short film cause we couldn't make a feature out of it, but, um, couldn't afford to make a feature out of it. It, the story did not require a feature, but it, re- I needed something to show somebody I can make a three act structure work and I can do it cinematically on time on budget as a commercial product. Okay. Mm. And sorry, I'm just jumping in sure. here. Um, so as a director, you, you know, in a way you, you've got this, this entity of power that goes with your with, with, with your job title and with what you do. Um, yeah. What I want to ask about is kind of centred around women in acting. 
Um, you're well familiar with the Me Too movement, sure. that kind of thing. Um, but I also wanted to ask about where you stand with um, increasing the profile of minority groups in film and theatre mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, in the movies that you make. Do you have some kind of quota in mind that you hope to include more minority ethnic groups in your films that you make? Mm-hmm. Do you, you know... Um, you know, what's your take on that? So uh, all of these concepts have really started bubbling again in my little head um, more in the last sort of four or five years. And uh, so for people who obviously don't know, because I'm here behind a microphone, I'm the cliche straight white guy from, you know, uh, any other place and you can find one. I never would have noticed. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, yes, I have it easy in that way. Uh, And uh, yeah, knowing Nancy was, was, was great. And I was really, I'm very happy and pleased. I have to say something, actually go back a little bit. I saw a long time ago, this uh, social study, I guess that was filmed where by somebody in America, and you can find that on some somehow on YouTube. I'm sure you can find it because I saw it, I guess, on YouTube. I can't remember where. I'll fast forward. You see children who are of the age of four or five mm. who are presented with dolls. Mm-hmm. And there's like uh, the black doll and there's the white doll. And uh, this is this was filmed a long time ago. We're talking late 90s. I think I actually... You know where I'm going with this? I, I, yeah, I think I know the one you're talking right. about. And I saw this and and quickly, you know, hey, how you doing? Do you like the doll? Is the doll... Yeah, yeah, the doll is happy, gray. Okay, which is the happy doll? The white doll. Which is the sad doll? The black doll. I mean, the dolls aren't smiling or doing anything. They're just different skin mm. colors. Like, okay. And then the interviewer goes further and goes, which is the nice doll? which is the nice doll. And again, children of all races and backgrounds say the nice doll is the white doll. The bad doll is the black doll. I'm like, that shocked me in a way which I could not believe that children would somehow perceive something that they could identify with as good or bad or evil or, Mm. or wrong. I was like, that is garbage. We need to do something about that. So that really changed me. Uh, Oh, he's got it. Doll test. There you go. YouTube oh, yeah. doll test. That everybody should see this. Yeah. That was so oh, such an this. incredible, yeah. incredible social um yeah, yeah. test. I thought yeah, it really changed well. my mind on, on lots of these topics. And um and yeah, so there's been this awakening, uh, the Me Too movement, which is a good thing, a force for good, uh, which uh, hopefully will evolve into something more structured. I don't know. Um, but um that is one thing we have a lot more minorities involved in all forms of filmmaking we have people like the rock we have you know beyonce and all that again i don't specifically as a person tend to care so much i really like when people come up with good stuff it really doesn't matter much to me but any uh, opportunity i think to create a more uh, varied crowd that will speak to individuals i think that's i mean what's not to like about that so yeah, it took a while, but we're getting there. Mm. That's good. So is it, is it your mantra then to be more colorblind in your casting then? Or is that what you aim to do, try to do? I, I know there are probably kind of mandates that um, your producers can put on you that will prevent you from casting in a certain way. But sure. is, it, is that how you naturally would like to be able to cast in the future? I think that we definitely should have casting that reflects society in a manner which is appropriate. And that means uh, showing, you know, strong um, women, strong black men who are good family takers or whatever. You, the world is such a diverse place. It just needs to have these stories to be told. It's pretty simple to me. If there's any opportunity to do that, then we should take them. Smash the stereotype. And, uh, and the stereotypes, obviously, you know, based on a lot of truth. Like, I mean, whenever I come into a room and you expect some things from me, I'm pretty sure I'll tick like half of the boxes, you know? I mean, mm, there, there's yeah. based on, on a, lot of, uh, a lot of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, there is a lot that needs to be like shifted and all. When I heard that um, Idris Elba was going to be maybe the next Bond, I thought, this is great. This mm. is a good one. I don't know where that conversation is going. I have no idea. But I thought like, this could be a good one. One of his disadvantages, I think, is if he becomes the new Bond, apparently he'll be the oldest actor to have started playing Bond. Now, I was going to say, oh, I'm really? pretty sure he's a little too old. He already has like yeah. a lot of white in his hair That's and in his, his beard. I love the, the men, you know, yeah. but 
Maybe somebody a little younger. I don't know. I think, uh, what's his name? Rez Aslan would be maybe Who? a great. Rez Aslan, did I pronounce his name? I, I messed it up. It he was in uh, Four Lions and he's in Star Wars in Rogue One. He's in Riz Venom. Ahmed. It, oh, Riz yeah, Ahmed. Ahmed. Riz Ahmed, yeah. isn't it? Ahmed, my bad. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, oh, Aslan, uh, Aslan is a, Rez Aslan is a CNN or was a CNN contributor. Oh, okay. Totally, totally confused the names. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking a lion. Yeah, because it's quite interesting about what you said about that because usually when there's a kind of clamor for changing the ethnicity of a long-standing character mm. um the default is to say oh we just got to make him black mm -hmm. and no one thinks okay let's make him asian first sure as as, as an alternative or so, female even yeah you yeah. Know. But we've, we've done, done an episode called about a female bond <laughs> as well yeah but, um, and then apparently like barbara broccoli who owns the franchises come out and made a, black, uh, a broad statement about why Bond will never be female, mm -hmm. uh, which we can, we, we can come back to another time. But yeah, I mean, the Asian thing, I mean, I wouldn't have a problem whether it was an Asian actor or a black actor mm -hmm. who became Bond next, because I think we've been saying that like Bond, if you look at the James Bond 007 as a code name, mm -hmm. then mm. you don't have to worry about the, it being historical or canon story. Yes. It's like several different agents have right. played this role because he's a code name mm -hmm. as a spy. Makes sense. But can I build up on this very quickly? And I would also say, um, as this movement is moving forward and it's taking hold, there's also, I hope that whoever are the decision makers to make, again, next bond of whatever color or sexual preference or whatever, it's good to tick, these, tick those boxes, but these are boxes. Like, don't mm. forget to make the damn character good. Mm. And I'm saying this, I always hear this, this phrase, a strong female character, and it's applied to Mila Jovovich in Ultraviolet or whatever movie she's doing some Kung Fu Resident kicks Evil. and all that. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's not a strong female strong. character. That's not a strong character, period. I want to say something about Resident Evil because I do think that franchise is recorded by a certain director, mm. and that director has become married to Mila Jovovich. Paul W.S. Anderson. Thank you. And right. then, so it's kind of assuming <laughs> that they kind of work together. So it's like a husband and wife team. Mm. But um, being somebody who's traveled around, you've been to America, France and uh, Germany. Have, do you, have you ever come across the term diversity inclusion in film? Because it's supposed to be like a new thing that's happening now. Mm, I mean, I've read articles about it, but it hasn't really crossed my, especially, I mean, definitely not prior to these last sort of four or five years. Yeah. I don't think so. I can't recall. Okay. But yeah. I mean, what do you think about the label diversity inclusion at the moment? Because that's really what the movement is about, trying to, I don't know, make, create an equal playing ground for ethnicities as well. I, again, I think as long as it represents accurate, accurately the population, that's a good one. But as long as the characters are still interesting, that should take over because that then is this would deserve the movement if you just cast somebody for the sake of being black or Asian or whatever. Yeah, that, yeah. And it's yeah. like, no, you got to create a good character first who then happens to be of this, mm. you know, uh, ethnic or gender or whatever. But it, you know, you don't want to just give like a quick shortcut to whatever actor uh, or, or yeah, personality just because of, you know, something that they haven't chosen. I mean, yeah, there's been a historical precedent that needs to be undone, but it still is not quite sufficient to then elevate that person, yeah. uh, in you know, onto the 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 top, uh, yeah, the the top of the podium. So I just hope the quality is the you know is going to be there, and um, and I think that that will help seriously help the movement if it's done right and properly without rushing it. But just to leave it on a lighter note, sure. You're saying Riz Ahmed for James Bond. I think he would be, I, I, I hear he's not super tall, but I love this guy. I think he's, yeah. I can not get my eyes off him. Yeah. No, right. So, I mean, Daniel if you see Craig, Tom Cruise, you know he can be James Bond. There's no doubt about right. it. Yeah. And I think Daniel Craig is the shortest Bond. He's 5'11". Is he? I think he's 5'11". He's 5'11". No, no, he's 5'11", okay. definitely. That's but now true. people are talking about Richard Baden from The Bodyguard, who is 5'9". Oh, okay, okay. I want to say something about Riz Ahmed. His yeah. credentials include being the evil, uh, the bad guy in Venom. And oh, I think he's been in Rogue One, like you've said. Yep. Yeah, don't and, tie him with Venom, please. And he's also been in Jason Bourne. <laughs> he's, he's, so he actually has Wait, been in the spy He was in Nightcrawler. That was kind of his sort of American breakout oh, role. Yeah, that was he was well. phenomenal. Yeah. The way he, yeah. he just created that character out of thin air was absolutely phenomenal. I, I, yeah. I love this guy. I think he's great. I just think he's great. What advice would you give to young people who wanted to follow in your career path of being a director? So I would say perseverance, 
Obviously, everybody I'm sure says that, but perseverance really is key. But um, thinking carefully of all the things that we've mentioned, this, I say, this reverse engineering, do things with a sense of purpose. Start with what you want to leave your audience with. It will help you get to it. Make sure your story is worth hearing in the first place. Some, some stories may be boring and not worth it. Something which is true and deep to you. Don't look for something that you think people want to hear. You may find something decent, but it will not have the power. You will not have the passion if it doesn't actually mean something really important to you. Um, and again, if you want to one day make a living out of this, think of all of this filmmaking, all of this commercial stuff. Think of all this I say not so much as art, but as the engineering of art, meaning it can be monetized and you should think of it as a business. And if you do so, you will place yourself in front of people who can then sign the check and green light your projects. And they're not going to do that if they don't see this, if they don't see your work or you as an asset they can use for their own benefit. It's just the way it is. Oh. The brain for kids sit down. <laughs> Thank you very much for your sage advice, Charles. That was the end of the Geekswear Inspiration interview. So we were co-hosted by MKH. Uh, au Jamie. <laughs> Ciao. And uh, presented by King Dom. Alfie Dessain. Um, I'd been your host, Trevor, and we've been ably recorded by Giovanni. Uh, thank you again, Charles, for turning up to our show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And if you'd like to know more about Geek Sweat, please feel free to find us on hashtag Geek Sweat, which is hashtag G-W-E-K-S-W-E-A-T, or at Sinus on Instagram or Twitter, G-E-E-K-S-W-E-A-T. We are also uh, doing Cult TV, Hot Topics, Inspiration Interviews, and Trailer Talk, as well as Review Sweat, find us on Castbox, Player FM, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. We talk films to save you hassle.